This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The fallout from the Huawei situation continues. Uh, again, there's lots of different aspects of this, uh, including uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau sounded, uh, he was sure that the Huawei saga would not aff- affect trade talks. Uh, my goodness. And, uh, of course, the question we're asking is, why is China bullying Canada and not taking it up with the United States, who, of course, started this whole process? Let's bring in Patrick LeBlanc, Associate Professor, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Thanks so much for the time, Patrick. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. So why why is China bullying Canada and not taking this up with the United States, since it was them that started all of this? Well, I think right now uh, Canada is a much easier target than than the United States. Uh, We know, well, the whole thing happened right after a meeting between President Trump and President Xi at the G20 in Argentina, where they agreed uh, to a 90-day truce uh, in order to uh, hopefully stop the trade war between the two countries. Uh, which is hurting both economies, and, uh, and certainly the uh, the Chinese economy is, is not doing as well as uh, the the leaders there would hope. Uh, so right now, uh, the fact that in a way Canada is the country responsible for arresting Mrs. Meng, uh, even though we're following in a way due process as a result of an extradition uh, request from the United States, we're in a way the bad guys because we arrested her and we didn't release her, and of course for the Chinese. That's a lot easier uh, than, than confronting the U.S. directly. Uh, at the same time, of course, it's not clear to what extent the Chinese really understand or want to understand our process, the fact that this is a legal process, that we cannot just intervene and, and, and release her. Patrick, uh, Patrick, let me interrupt you there. With all yeah. due respect, I have a hard time believing that China does not know the consequences or how we do business or the law works in Canada, considering the penetration that companies like Huawei have had over the years. So, yeah. again, how does China just, oh, uh, we, we don't know what's going on. I mean, how do they just, do they think we're that naive? Uh, I think in part they do, uh, possibly. I think it's also, I mean, they, 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 I mean, they, they understand things the way, the way they do, they do things. Uh, they, I think there's a belief that somehow, somewhere, there is always a political solution, uh, and that if we really wanted to, we could make it happen. Uh, I think also domestically, we have to understand that, um, Mrs. Meng is very popular, Huawei is very popular in China. So in part, this is a, a, a response to domestic pressures, or at least pressures to be doing something. Uh, and of course, the general Chinese population is not going to understand the legal intricacies of, of, of the Canadian uh, legal system and extradition uh, agreements and things like that. So I, I think on the one hand, they understand. On the other, um, I think it, they're also responding to their own domestic political process, wanting to show that they're not just going to wait for uh, the legal process in Canada to happen. And, you know, Canada is small, and it's uh, now we're in a world where big countries kind of push around and, 
and assert their their power and uh, you know even the U.S. right they follow the rules when they want to but uh, when they don't want to they they feel that they 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 can ignore them even Mr. Trump thinks that uh, Mrs. Meng and then the whole extradition issue can be uh, just another pawn in in the negotiations uh, again somehow throwing the the Canadians under a bus uh, in 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 that conflict. Uh, on that note of him saying that, how does that complicate this issue? Well, I mean, in, in fact, it doesn't change anything. The, the thing is, is that it kind of sends a signal that, you know, even though the U.S. are supposed to be like Canada, right, uh, rules-based system, law-abiding country, follow due process and all these things, but when you have the, the, the U.S. president sort of saying that, well, uh, we'll see how it goes and uh, maybe we'll, uh, we'll, we'll make something happen in order to get this trade deal, well, this is a sending the signal to, to the Chinese that, in a way, the U.S. can operate in, in a similar way to, the, to China, right? To Chinese governance, where if, if orders come from the top, then uh, the legal process somehow can be bypassed or can be changed, uh, which in a way is not true. But certainly that doesn't help Canada uh, and the Canadian government make the case that, uh, well, you know, we, we're just following the law that the, 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 the government cannot just intervene and override court, uh, court decisions or uh, ignore an extradition treaty, these kinds of things. Uh, so it's not helping us in, 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 in terms of our defense vis-a-vis the Chinese that, you know, we're just following due process. This is how we do business. We don't in, in, in get involved in the courts. So we don't politicize uh, the judicial process. And then you have the Americans, instead of supporting us and saying, look, Yes, this is how it is. We all, we're, we're following our own rules because we have these sanctions, and this is what the Department of Justice in the U.S. is doing, et cetera, et cetera. This is just about the law, and due process is being taken care of. She's well taken care of. Now she's being released on bail, et cetera, et cetera. We're kind of saying we're, we're being isolated by, by the U.S. in this whole thing, and uh, it's certainly not helping us in terms of our dealings with, with China and, and uh, certainly the retaliation that, that, they, that China has taken. So, uh, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, Canada, uh, 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 of course, exercises the warrant and, and, and arrests this woman and holds her. She goes through a transparent trial. Everyone at every, every moment of the day knows where she is, what she's up to. The trial is very public. She is then released on bail. How is that? And I know it's a different set of, 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 of circumstances and culture over there. But uh, how do they how do they justify us putting this person through due process and international law? And they're scooping people off the street and we don't even know where the heck they are. And I mean, we're just getting information now that uh, that John McCallum has met with Michael uh, Kovrig. But other than that, I mean, it's taken days to even figure out where these people are or even get or even talk to them. So how is that the same? And does that change Canadians perspective of how China does business? Well, you know, it is different. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the Chinese legal system operates very differently than the Canadian one. And, and, you know, there's nothing we can do about that, unfortunately. And, and as we know, these, these, these types of operations are not new. Uh, so, uh, so the, you know, there's not much that, that, that we can do other than what the government is already doing and trying to make sure that Mr. Colbert is, is safe and, and, and relatively healthy. Uh, but certainly, uh, you know, the, the rest is, 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 is very, you know, we won't change the Chinese system. But certainly to your latter point about uh, how the, the Chinese do business and how Canadians are going to perceive that, well, certainly 
it reinforces the fact that the Chinese play by different rules than, than we play and that, you know, they, they are willing to um, uh, somehow ignore due process or, uh, or the law in some cases uh, to suit their own political needs. Uh, and there's already a fair amount of skepticism in the Canadian population. Vis-a-vis China, we know that uh, you know they, 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 there's abuses of human rights in, in Xinjiang and, and all that. That the Canadians are always already worried of 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 of, China, of doing, let's say, free trade with China. The opinion polls support that. So I think uh, the situation right now just makes it a lot more difficult for the government uh, to want to deepen. Uh, its trade and economic relations with China and certainly pursue uh, a free trade agreement uh, because uh, the, the Canadian population would say, wait a minute, we're going to negotiate a free trade agreement while they're hold, holding, uh, you know, two, two Canadians and, and we don't really know exactly what, what these people have done, uh, where they are, how they're being treated. Uh, and uh, so I, I think that that just makes it much more difficult to, to move forward on, on, on the economic front. Uh, Huawei, uh, obviously, it doesn't have the uh, free-for-all in the United States that they do in Canada. They don't let them in there for security reasons. Uh, uh, why, why is Huawei operating here? Does this change that discussion? I, I don't know to what extent it changes the discussion. Uh, certainly, uh, Huawei, as, as, you know, as, I mean, it, it operates in, in the U.S. everywhere also. It's not that it doesn't operate in the U.S. No, but they're a lot uh, more they're a lot more sensitive to security and allowing yeah, them involved yeah, in their you know, in their the systems. Lately, since Trump, have been much more concerned and 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 have been pushing around this idea that. Uh, you know, Huawei uh, technology and they should not be in, in, involved in any of the 5, 5G telecommunications, uh, you know, kind of new generation processes right. uh, in the U.S. And, and pushing Canada to go that way. Now, Canada has, has not yet decided, so far has decided to, to, to kind of manage the risks associated with that. Is it in part because Huawei has, has, does research and development uh, here in Canada, especially it has operations in Ottawa, some uh, Many of it actually uh, comes from, from Nortel. Many of the engineers who used to work for Nortel uh, now work for Huawei. Uh, so does that play in, in, in the balance? It, it's hard to tell. Um, but, you know, certainly it, it's, you know, it, there is kind of a, a shadow of concerns when, when the, for the Canadian population when they hear that, uh, you know, Huawei, of course, has close relationships with China, which most large businesses in China do. Uh, and uh, there's there a fear that uh, through their systems, uh, telecommunications, uh, te- you know, uh, infrastructure technology, they, there could be a backdoor uh, that in a way the Chinese government could, could have access to uh, sensitive information in, in, in Canada or other countries that potentially they could even shut down the telecommunication system. Uh, so these are fears that have been expressed out there. It's not clear how what the level of risk, because in a way that, that there's very little transparency there. And, and to what extent it can actually be managed. Uh, you know, so far what we've been told here is that uh, this, this risk can be managed, the technology can be somehow isolated and dealt with and expected, but then you have the U.S., the U.K., uh, Australia saying, no, you know, we're, we're going to make sure that uh, Huawei is, 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 doesn't touch any critical infrastructure uh, in, in our country. So uh, there, there's a lot of pressure on Canada to, to follow suit, that's for sure. And right now with everything that's happening, it might reinforce that 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 kind of presumption of of 
um, you know, of doubt and concerns that uh, many Canadians uh, already have. And then I'll just make others might say, well, yeah, well, maybe we shouldn't be doing business with, with, with these people. Uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau sounded confident uh, ongoing Huawei saga would be kept separate from uh, trade talks with Beijing. How can it not if they're, if they're threatening further retaliation unless this person is released? Yeah, well, I guess it depends how you interpret trade talks. Uh, right now, there are no trade talks uh, with China. Uh, yes, Minister Morneau was uh, was in China recently for the, uh, the economic dialogue uh, with Minister Carr. Uh, they talked about the trade deal, but uh, as far as I know, there haven't been there has not been anything concrete since uh, the Prime Minister uh, went in December 2017, and, and then you know the, the whole thing kind of stopped. Uh, and and we can. Ex- I, I would be surprised that, notwithstanding what's happening right now, that uh, anything would have happened really until the elections. Because uh, I would be surprised that the Liberal government would want to make uh, a free trade deal a sort of political issue in in, in the, uh, the the fall elections. So uh, my uh, my view, uh, you know, for the before the the, the last tensions. Um, uh, was that nothing would happen uh, until at least 2020? Uh, if and then that's of course if the uh, the Liberals were elected, if the Conservatives win, then well, who knows what what will happen? Uh, but I think right now certainly the circumstances are not um, uh, favorable to negotiating a, a free trade agreement, and and I don't see the Canadian population really getting behind such negotiations. Uh, so will uh, the Canadian government release the uh, Huawei CFO and and not send her to the United States if that's what's uh, asked, or, they do, or or do they follow the United States? Well, look, I, as far as I understand, I'm not I'm not an ex I'm not a, a lawyer and an expert on extradition, but my understanding is now she's on bail. There's going to be a hearing in February in front of the judge. Uh, where basically the judge uh, will have to decide whether to uh, recommend extradition uh, based, uh, you know, on evidence provided by by all sides. Uh, and uh, according to the extradition treaty and extraditional law in, in, in Canada, uh, and then uh, of course that decision can be appealed, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, ultimately, also the Minister of Justice has to um, uh, approve the uh, the extradition to the United States. Uh, so there's still many many steps. But right now, uh, the uh, the government cannot just say, "Okay, yeah, we're, we're going to cancel the whole thing uh, and uh, send her send her on her merry way." It's I mean, gone too far American, for that. You know, they can't do that. I mean, yeah. uh, this is not how our, our system of law functions. Thank God. Uh, unless the Americans pull out the extradition request, if they pull it out, then then she's free, then then that's it. But it's, as far as we are concerned, you know, there there is no deal to be had right now in terms of you know exchanging prisoners or something like that. Uh, that 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 cannot happen. So is China going to continue to just scoop ca- Canadians off the street? I mean, they say until she's released, this is you know they're going to up the ante. Uh, look, I cannot answer that question. Only the Chinese can answer that question. And I guess we'll find out uh, in due time if, if they're going to up the ante and, 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 and uh, arrest more Canadians. Uh, 
uh, we'll see. Uh, but um, you know, who knows? I, I I thought that you know they they were just threatening and and not willing to retaliate. Now they're retaliating. So who knows how far they can go? So what does this mean as far as business going between Canada and China right now in the short term? Well, it certainly, whenever these things happen, it always puts a damper on, on, on business relations, obviously. Uh, I think for the most part, it, it's going to be you know, business as usual in many cases. I think a lot of businesses will want to you know, and, and ignore all this and not be part of it, obviously, uh, and say, look, you know, this is not our concern. We're, just, you know, we're buying and selling goods and services whatsoever. But we've already heard that um, you know there are, there are boycotts of Canadian goods in, in China. Apparently, uh, sales of uh, Canada Goose products have, have plummeted, uh, and then so there might be other Canadian you know well identified Canadian products um, that will be uh, targeted and boycotted by uh, Chinese consumers. That's very possible. But in other cases, you know uh, there are Chinese businesses that still need to to make sales and and, and make money. And some of their Canadian clients, uh, they will want to continue doing business with them and vice versa. Their Canadian businesses will need uh, also to, to buy from China for their own operations or want to sell to China to make their own money. So I, I think in large part, business will continue as it often does in these situations. But uh, there, are, especially on the consumer goods, it's possible that, that many goods, uh, many Canadian products might, might suffer, uh, especially if they're identified as being uh, Canadian. Patrick LeBlanc has been with us, Associate Professor, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa. Patrick, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Scott. No problem. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's a pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We were just talking uh, in regard to the, the, the trade fallout, the business fallout in what has happened with the Huawei situation. Uh, to bring you up to date on the latest, I understand John McCallum has at least spoke to one of those detained, that be Michael Kovrig. Uh, that has just happened. That is new information. Uh, obviously, up until now, nobody has really known where these people are or what their condition is, their whereabouts and such. Uh, one uh, we know of, anyway, is speaking with uh, John McCallum. Uh, as far as uh, Spaver, no word on his whereabouts uh, at, this, at this point. Obviously, though, China uh, expressing... Um, outrage at all of this and continuing uh, further revenge on Canada. So is Canada all alone? It's Why is China picking on us and not the instigator of all this, and that being the U.S.? It's their warrant. Uh, let's bring in John Higginbotham, Senior Distinguished Fellow, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, and on the line with us now. John, thanks for your time. Much appreciated. Wow, delighted to be here. So, why are the Canadian, or sorry, why is China bullying Canada? And this seems to be off the radar with the U.S. Uh, because they can get away with it. We have no real tools of retaliation. Whereas, if they'd done it to some Americans, there'd probably be warships going through the South China Sea. That being said, this was all on a warrant from the United States. Uh, how can you ignore the elephant in the room here? 
Well, you can't. I mean, the elephant and the dragon are engaged in a in a huge geopolitical war, in a sense, over over future high tech and strategic dominance in Asia. It's a very serious, very large new conflict that uh, Trump has unleashed, even with some merit to what he's doing in respect of looking at the balance of of power and the balance of advantages and disadvantages in the U.S.-China relationship. So we're basically a pawn in this uh, in this game, just as the uh, two uh, Canadians who were unfortunately picked up by the Chinese are even lesser pawns in this game. So, so there's really very little we can do about it if we're just going to talk to the Americans and talk to the Chinese. Normal diplomatic uh, instruments, I'd say, are... are unlikely to be successful in this game. So is this off the radar, or was this the plan all along, was to throw this into Canada's court and, and let them have to deal with it, and meaning, meanwhile with China and the United States, it's off the radar? Well, it's an exquisite, if it were planned, it was an exquisitely planned chess move by the United States. It puts the Canadian government, who they don't have the highest regard for, in a tough, very tough spot. Here you're choosing to arrest uh, a a woman executive of a very successful corporation, which certainly goes against Mr. Trudeau's kind of uh, feminist feminist pretensions. And it uh, underlines uh, Canada's ambiguous position on the future of Huawei in terms of uh, our own uh, strategic uh, uh, digital infrastructure. So uh, it puts us in a very difficult position. So even though it was the U.S. that pulled the trigger on this, Donald Trump's view is, oh well, so sad, too bad for you. Exactly. There, we have no capital w- with the U.S. at the moment. Where does nor that? Do we, nor do we do with China, because this, in fact, is infuriating the Chinese, because it's, uh, in fact, they're they're under some pressure to to uh, react carefully because it's. Uh, potential very strong nationalist issue. In fact, the costs of all this, maybe you've talked about this already, uh, are already chilling uh, Canada-China commercial relations, Canada-China political relations. Much more is happening now than the case of these uh, two individuals who who physically are fine. They're, 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 They're in jail. They're part of a diplomatic Morse code between Canada and, uh, and China. Where does this leave the Prime Minister? Can he continue to play both sides of this fence? Well, he's being he's sitting on both sides of a, 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 a picket fence, which yeah. is an extremely uncomfortable position. And uh, it's a great pity that someone didn't decide to to sort of misplace the paperwork when this first request went through to Canada. But of course, it was handled not with uh, much much brilliance at a at a uh, bureaucratic level between police and justice departments and so forth and we're hiding behind the so-called rule of law in a highly politicized highly imperfect uh, um, uh, extradition request from the United States there's some legal questions as to whether it's it will it will apply in the Canadian case but this could go on for months I really do not see Mrs. Meng being led in handcuffs onto a U.S. Uh, Marshall aircraft. 
Uh, and at every moment, this chill continues to spread in broader Canada-China relations. Uh, we're going to pay a heavier price. Boycotts, uh, uh, chilled commercial deals, cancelled ministerial visits, the whole pageant of normal Canada-China relations is under under uh, acute stress right now are we going to continue are we going to continue to see canadians scooped off the street in china until she is released i think that's quite unlikely they'll they'll they uh, i think the pressure is there now uh, and uh, the impl- the consequences are much more severe uh, on these other areas these other areas of all hopes of canada having free trade agreement with china uh, all the commercial investment we've made in, all the government and commercial investment we've made in closer relations with China, all of that's gone into high-speed reverse, and that's going to continue as long as they, as long as we have uh, Miss Meng, and as long as they have the uh, the two young Canadians that they've picked up. Could this backfire on China from a Canadian PR perspective? Obviously, Canada willing to let Huawei in and be a part of the 5G network. Uh, the United States doesn't want anything to do with that. Uh, Australia, UK talking about the same thing. Does this change Canadians' perspectives on doing business with China and with Huawei? Well, in my view, they, the Canadian government is going to have to... Uh, uh, prohibit Huawei from uh, taking part in a kind of 5G backbone infrastructure. Maybe you could do the two things simultaneously. Let Ms. Meng go and announce a, a new tough policy towards Huawei and therefore appear, appease the Americans somewhat. But uh, that would that's a position that would require coordination and imagination, which is not necessarily this government's strongest uh, forte. Uh, will the Huawei CFO be extradited to the United States, in your opinion? Will it get that far? No, I, I, I cannot see it happening. From whose perspective? Canada's or the United States just letting it go? From Canada's. Uh, I, I believe the pressure is uh, is so strong on Canada-China relations that we should look with... It's, it's a very odd extradition request. Lawyers bring up many... Uh, technical issues in relation to it. And, and considering what the pri- or what the president said in regard to using exactly. the CFO as a leverage, all of that, yes, exactly, that plays right into the hands, does it not? Right, but I mean, we're we're uh, it's it's quite an imperfect uh, uh, extradition request. Is that Canada's trying. out? Is that, in your opinion, is that Canada's yes. out? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I quite frankly, I remember when. Uh, the guy who stole all the secrets from the NSA uh, was was in Hong Kong for a while, and the U.S. followed him with an extradition request. Well, the the, uh, the Hong Kong authorities, acting acting uh, wisely, just lost the request, and boom, he's on an airplane to Russia. So, I mean, I, that, I don't think Canada is not very good at that level of uh, political uh, political leadership, but. Uh, that's the way other countries would handle it. If we let her slip away, what? Where does that leave relations with the United States? Well, they're not good now. Uh, they're certainly we took a we took a bad deal instead of no deal. Uh, Isn't it fascinating America. though that instead of siding with our age-old friend the United States of America, we're siding with China? 
well, we're not siding with China because it's it's been a yeah uh, it's been a, 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 a not a, not a very useful uh, uh, initiative from the beginning from the United States. Right. But, but uh, as I say, we continue to have to stand with the United States in the long term strategic cooperation with the United States. For, for example, uh, keeping Huawei out of the Canadian market. I think that has to be done. Yeah. So it might be done as a quid pro quo to show the U.S. that we're we're still serious partners, but but we also should take a, a look a, a little more carefully at how we've managed our relations with China, uh, always giving China the benefit of the doubt on on hacking, on technological uh, uh, technological uh, theft of, of intellectual property. Uh, on the massive trade deficit we run with China, which normally would be we would be using to keep pressure on them to import more from Canada, uh, we we we've we've had a lot of illusions in our relations with China, and now of course we're letting the Americans once again do the heavy lifting in respect of trying to bring China into more uh, normal parameters in in terms of international trade and law. So I'm. Um, I think uh, Canada's needs to also take a deep, soul-searching dive into the issue of our economic vulnerability to things happening in the United States and our economic vulnerability to things happening in China. Too busy chasing uh, the golden goose and and being naive to other issues. Yes, I do. I do. I've, I've been involved in that for forty years, uh, knowing that Canadians are. Uh, uh, always have a special place for China, and China tends to get the best of the the deal. Any chance the U.S. will drop these charges against the Huawei CFO? How serious are these uh, uh, allegations in regard to avoiding the sanctions in Iran? Well, that would be the that would be the miracle. I mean, the, the Minister Freeland and Sajjan are both down in Washington today, and ultimately... Uh, I suppose they can. Their their action request should be to for the U.S. to delicately withdraw the uh, request. Uh, I think that's with Trump. I think that's highly unlikely because he loves this sort of uh, this sort of uh, wrestling match between the sumo wrestlers. And it doesn't really matter if we get trampled. So, can this CFO be used as a a pawn a leverage in a trade negotiation? I, I, I'm not sure. I, it, it's, they, they're, they're in charge of all the levers in terms of this very, very important negotiation with China. I think, actually, I believe think Trump wants this negotiation uh, to fail. I think he wants to see far more barriers put up to, to uh, U.S.-China uh, cooperation, investment, trade, in order to, quote, make, make America great again. But unfortunately, we have a Xi Jinping wants to make China great again. Mm. Does Donald Trump have a point in how he's dealing with China? I do. I believe he does. Mm-hmm. It's almost the only area of his policy that I, I would endorse. Where the tough guy but, image works. <laughs> no, well, not the tough guy, but the fundamental issues of uh, of of being really tough with China mm. on the rules of the game in terms of because China is not a not a, a liberal trading power. It's a power that wants to become greater and greater based on all instruments of national 
national power and influence. And they have and succeeded. There's nothing wrong with There's nothing, and they have succeeded. In North America, I mean, we're far large. more reliant on them than they are on us. Right, right. Well, we, we, we can blame the Chinese. Uh, you can't blame the Chinese for a theft no. if you leave, leave the back door of your house open. <laughs> and we've done that for the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, what message is Donald Trump sending to Justin Trudeau by staying mum on this? Or not offering, again, this issue for us, we're, we're all up in arms about it. It doesn't even seem to be on his radar, other than the smart comment about the leverage. Well, uh, it's just that we don't have much capital with the Trump administration. There's no, no, you can't imagine more different leaders or kind of ideologies than a Canadian liberal government and uh, a Trump administration. What about other countries? Why aren't they speaking up about this? Well, I think they'll just want to keep a low profile. They don't have any dogs in the game. So uh, I think it's uh, it's up to Canada. Canada is alone on these issues. I was just about to say, are we all We've alone on... bad relations with China, bad relations with the United States, kind of questionable relations with Europe just because of they're so preoccupied with Brexit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, not much capital elsewhere as well. Are we all alone on an island, John, here? Uh, there's, I think the, uh, I think the, on this particular issue, we are. I think there's a warning here to other countries to, to be very careful for the, uh, getting caught in the vortex of bad Canada, uh, Canada, China relations. I mean, U.S.-China relations, but uh, I don't think specifically others are going to want to get involved. They're not going to stand up for us any more than they stood up for the fact when the uh, Saudis started to act recklessly in respect of uh, Canadian statements. Mm. Um, Could this government have done something different other than perhaps losing the paperwork along the way? Once this was issued, once uh, once this happened and we were caught... Once it's launched in that, and once their spin on it is... Well, we're just uh, we're just obeying the law, and uh, it's all a legal matter, and it's not political, and we've got to follow due process and everything else. There was nothing much we could do. You would have had to act very quickly, very early. Uh, Finance Minister Bill Murnau said that uh, this shouldn't affect trade in any way. How can it not? Well, it is already, ludicrous. isn't it? That's ludicrous. I mean, it's 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 kumbaya. It's not going to happen. It is going to do damage. And it's fragile to begin with, because already the Chinese have toughened up on their position of what they would want out of a free trade agreement, particularly no action against uh, state-owned enterprises, no use of the national security provisions, and access to Canadian energy resources through, mm. through the West Coast, which we cannot deliver for internal domestic reasons. Man. And, and that's just their attitude towards... Uh, Canada, and then our government, 100% opposite, has uh, has raised the stakes on uh, on uh, intellectual uh, on on human rights, on uh, green issues, on uh, feminism, on uh, on what's happening to the Uyghurs and everything else. So we're we're carrying out quite a, a provocative policy too, in relation to our demands on human rights. We're trying to inject things. They're going in one direction, injecting new things. We're going in the opposite direction, injecting new things. And now this is the uh, the icing on the cake in terms of uh, spoiling the uh, optics and atmosphere of Canada-China relations.
Where is this going short term? Obviously, uh, February, there will be the trial in regard to the CFO. Where are we six months from now on this? Well, I think our 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 relations are in the toilet until we get this uh, get this particular irritant out of the way and to revert to the normal, boring uh, pageant of Canada-China relations. The only way that will happen is if, because Canada's trapped, so they have to deliver this CFO, so unless the U.S. drops the charge or makes it go away somehow, we're in this for the long run. Well, I, I, I believe we will not. When it's studied by the lawyers and everything else, they will find this... That will be our out. ...an imperfect yeah. request... But I sure wish that could be done sooner based on the judgment of the Minister of Justice now rather than three months from now where there will be this uh, uh, corros- corrosion of, our, uh, of, the, of the good relations with China, which we've built up over, over 30 or 40 years. John Higginbotham has been with us, Senior Distinguished Fellow, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. John, fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We remember uh, a couple of weeks ago the conversations coming out of GM in Oshawa uh, over that weekend. Uh, All of a sudden news breaking that uh, General Motors was closing its operation in Oshawa. Uh, By the end of the weekend, uh, we found out that was not just Oshawa, but uh, four or five other plants across North America and more worldwide as part of a restructuring uh, system for General Motors. Uh, Jerry Diaz and the Unifor Union uh, up in arms. Uh, We remember the language he used in in regards to the premier and such. Um, But it seems that uh, now that the dust is settling, um, some are starting to realize there's there's really nothing that can be done there. And and a lot of it is just bluster. And it's time to move on and and actually do what we can for these people who are going through this transition in life. Uh, The Canadian uh, press is reporting General Motors of Canada says it's working with other employers to identify jobs and targeting training programs for GM employees affected by the closure of the Oshawa assembly plant. It says several employers have identified about 2,000 jobs that will be open in Durham region in 2019-20. In addition, General, Mo- General Motors has identified 300 openings in auto tech in auto tech positions at GM dealerships in Ontario and 100 jobs that will be open at other GM facilities throughout Ontario. Uh, GM Canada says Durham College will also establish a confidential internet portal in the new year to help auto workers identify job openings and begin plans for appropriate retraining and one of several schools in the area to do so. To talk more about all of this, Ian Lee is with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and he is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. My pleasure. Ian, has the, has the rhetoric settled down and now we've realized that there's not much we can do in order to save these jobs and it's time to move on to the next step? I think so. I think that uh, we're realizing that. Uh, since we last talked on this issue, I did some more research because I knew uh, I knew that the uh, the full story wasn't being released. I don't mean by you. I mean just that we were it wasn't coming into the conversation. And I came across the uh, this is the stats can from the the daily. This is Canada publishes a thing called the daily because every day they publish new statistics. This was the daily dated October 11, 2018. It's only about 45 days ago, and this is a direct quote from Statistics Canada. There were 547,300 job vacancies in Canada 
in the second quarter of 2018 up 87,000 jobs vacant from the second quarter of 2017. In other words, that's a half a million jobs uh, uh, going begging. They're not filled. And so when we hear of a, you know, a, a plant, I'm not celebrating this. I'm not saying, oh, whoopee, whoopee. I'm just simply saying that the, you know, the, the implicit message from Jerry Diaz and others, these people's lives are ruined. You know, they're never going to, you know, the implicit narrative is they're never going to work again or they're not going to work for a very long time. And that's just simply not true. The stats do not support that. We are in an era of labor shortages, not labor surplus. And what about the qual- what about the quality of those jobs? Because that's what, what what Jerry Diaz will say. He'll say that yeah. you know they're not paying. They don't know the benefits of these GM jobs that they've lost. Yeah. Uh, well, he should go and look at the StatsCan data uh, because it's broken down, and they're in every sector, every sector, construction. Uh, you name it, and uh, and this myth that that only General Motors pays benefits—it's just nonsense, okay? Or that only the auto industry pays benefits. Uh, the service sector—I've been in the service sector all my life. I've never worked in manufacturing, and I've always ever worked, and I've worked in different jobs, not just the university. You know, I worked in financial services for ten years for two different employers. I always had uh, private, uh, you know, insurance and dental plan and pension plan. I had all that those benefits, and so large numbers of people have uh, benefits that are equal uh, to anything that's uh, paid for by the auto industry. So uh, it, it's, again, it's a myth. It's an urban myth that there is, uh, that, that these people won't get a job, and secondly, if they do, they're all going to be flipping hamburgers. I hear this also. It's simply not true. There's shortages of engineers. There's shortages of doctors. There's shortages of just about every occupation going. And uh, and especially somebody who's got technical skills from a production line, and that's what that General Motors press release was really saying, was that they're, they can place them in, there's a lot of different areas of the economy uh, in the southern Ontario area where they need people with uh, these technical skills. So I, I think they'll all be placed very, very quickly in jobs. Are you surprised uh, to hear that a company is working with other employees to identify jobs that they could go into? And it says like there's about 2,000 that will be created in that region in the next year or so. Uh, that certainly looks good on them. It certainly is good PR. It, yeah, does yeah. the rubber Is the rubber hitting the road here? I think it's good, uh, to use the phrase that's uh, common today, good corporate social responsibility. Um, I mean, it's also good PR, let's be clear. I mean, General Motors is still a very large seller of cars. And all of those people who are working at General Motors buy cars, just like the rest of us by automobiles. And um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, to be blunt, if I was working for an auto company and they laid me off, I'd probably be very angry at that company. And I'd probably, one of the first things I'd say is, you know what, I'm never going to buy a car from that company again because I'm so angry. So they want to retain their goodwill as future customers. So they're working and using resources at General Motors and, uh, and using their clout that, you know, they, they can open doors when the phone call comes in from the senior vice president of General Motors uh, to the local mayor's office or to a, a a local large employer's office, you're not going to tell him to go take a hike or her. You're going to talk to them. You can open, General Motors can open doors and, and solicit the cooperation. And uh, so it's not only, I mean, it's good PR, yes, it it's, uh, fosters uh, future good relations with those people, but also it cements ties into the community of, uh, you know, the municipalities and regional uh, institutions and so forth. So I thought that that was a very astute move on General Motors' part in doing that. And I think that, you know, instead of us always going to the automatic default reflex, let's go bail out another company, which is the, 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 the default reflex of Jerry Diaz, in my view, I think we've got to start thinking more creatively 
creatively and more strategically and saying, well, you know, if they don't have skills that are needed, but they have skills nearby, meaning they have skills that aren't exactly on point but quite similar, why aren't we talking about more retraining programs and investing in the human capital of the worker instead of footloose uh, corporations that can up and leave the company, uh, country, excuse me, perfectly legally? Uh, when this all went down, we certainly heard all the bluster uh, in, in what was happening, and, 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 and you can totally understand that. Again, people losing their jobs, there's, there's nothing sure. positive there. Uh, that being said, anything more on what Unifor has done, or you know, it's, we, we haven't really heard anything more on, on, on their action. It, it seems that they're going more in that direction, whereas GM is trying to, to, to find placement for these workers. Um, where is the battle with Unifor and GM? Well, I think, and the problem is, and I, I don't think anyone else is saying this, so I'm going to say it. I, you know, I've got, I'm talking to you. I think it's important here in Southern Ontario, and there's probably a lot of listeners who are, are unionized. And by the way, so am I. Uh, we have automatic dues check off at Carleton, and every professor's unionized as they are at most Canadian universities, and certainly universities in southern Ontario. Uh, but, but where I'm going with this is that I think the unions are in a bit of a conflict of interest. And let me explain. You know, they say, we're here for the workers. We want to support the workers. Well, if they really are there for the workers, they should be happy if they get a job anywhere, whether it's a unionized company or not, or in a company that is unionized by another union. That should not bother them. But uh, what they really are worried about, uh, in my view, their concern is with their own union as an institution. Fair enough, but they're not disclosing that because they know that when those workers le- lose their jobs, they're no longer going to pay union dues to that un- to Unifor. Uh, if you know, if you go and work for another company that's not unionized, they're not going to get union dues. Or you work for another company that is represented by another union that's not Unifor, then Unifor will not get those dues. And so my point is that puts them into a bit of a conflict of interest. Their interest is only in having another automotive, whether GM or another automotive plant, that's going to be represented presented by Unifor and Unifor getting the dues from those workers. Whereas if we are really concerned about the greater public good of the workers, we should be working assiduously, they should be working assiduously to ensure that they get a job anywhere. It doesn't matter whether they're represented by Unifor or not. Now, I know that sounds a bit idealistic, but at the same time, uh, I, I don't really think at the end of the day um, that the, the worker who's been laid off is going to be sitting around saying, well, I'm only going to accept a job if it's Unifor, if it's a Unifor-represented job. I don't think they, ordinary people think like that. They want to have a good life. Uh, they want to have a good job, whether it's uni- unionized through Unifor or not. Where does that leave? And I've, uh, you know, we've had this discussion many times on, you know, how the unions modernize and move forward. Yeah. Where does that leave the movement? They only seem to be interested in companies that are large. That, as you said, right. bring in that large union due base. So, where does that? Considering there's less and less large companies, more uh, yeah. smaller, minute companies. Where does that leave them moving forward? Other than to, I guess, amalgamate with each other. I, uh, I think, and, and I'm, I'm sure some people, I've actually had emails say, you know, Ian Lee, you hate unions. No, that's not true. I'm just being uh, giving a strategic analysis of them. I do believe that there is a, a different model that they can adopt and follow. And, that, and I have looked at the record of the German unions. 
in Germany. And the German unions are very different. They're not these confrontational, uh, you know, unions that are often going on strike. Mm. They work very closely with management, but they haven't been co-opted. But they work very closely because they realize their real competitor is not the management of the company where uh, that they're representing, uh, you know, that they've uh, that they've unionized. They realize the German unions, by and large, realize they're quote, competitors, are companies in other countries. Mm. And so they benchmark. They actually, I mean, imagine this. German unions benchmark what other uh, auto companies are making in other countries, their productivity, their way, their benefits, and so forth. And so they, are, they have a very good idea what they can ask for in uh, wage negotiations, and their job is to, they want to maximize the success of the companies in Germany to maximize the employment of workers in Germany. And so by doing that, the, the German unions win and prosper. But you don't hear that kind of language or rhetoric coming out of the American or Canadian unions, although I think the American unions are starting to move in that direction. I'm not so certain that the big industrial unions, the Unifors, are moving in that direction in, in, in Canada. Uh, what is the holdback? Is it just a matter of time before they adopt that thinking? I mean, we're seeing what's happening here. I, I think it is. I think it's a culture shift. It's a, it's, a, it's a shift in the mentality. I mean, the German unions have been uh, working in that mode or that, you know, that model, if I can call it that, for a very long time. I mean, at least since the 1950s, 60s. Uh, so probably after the Second World War. And, uh, and that's, it's, it's, par- it's partly there, that culture, it just happens to support that, that, um, uh, cooperative. Uh, so how does that how, how does that work? Because you again, you talked about uh, unions in North America. It's often seen as a confrontational. It's us yes. versus them. We're seeing that with the, the recent postal strike and such. You yes. know, it's one versus the other. How, yes. What are they doing differently to change that culture? Well, from everything I've read, and I have read a lot on this because I've been fascinated. How on earth can you pull this off? Um, I mean, the quid pro quo. Remember, is that the German workers in in uh, especially in manufacturing have a very very high wages. So what uh, what management has clearly been doing for a very long time to come, I mean for many many years uh, in the past, is they've been sharing the the benefits with the workers. Now because they've had a, a full disclosure, they've been much more open in disclosing their financial results, but not just the financial results. I mean GM discloses its audited pay, uh, uh, financials too, but I mean they re- reveal a lot more of the numbers under the hood that are not required by law to be disclosed, they share it with the unions and tell them, you know, look, this plant has got this productivity uh, problem, this plant over here has got much higher productivity. Like, they give that that kind of very um, intimate uh, corporate information. They share it with the unions, not the public. And then they work with the unions and say, look, if we can turn this around, we're going to share uh, the the increase in the revenues of the profits with you. And so it's been a quid pro quo. I'm going to scratch your back because you're scratching my back. And it, it seems to have work because, as I said, the German auto industry and manufacturing industry have some of the highest wages in the world. They also have, by the way, have some of the highest productivity in the world. So why have the U.S. or North American unions failed to adopt that model? Why have they, especially when um, lots of people point to Germany as, as the country that's doing it right? Um, I, I, I've asked that question for a very long time, and up until 2008, 2009, uh, there was no evidence it was going to happen. 
after the 2008-9, which has absolutely devastated the auto industry, as we all know, I mean, two of them failed. Uh, they went bankrupt, uh, Chrysler um, and, uh, and General Motors. Um, the, the UAW in the States has moved more in that, in that direction. I would say much more so than Unifor. My sense is Unifor has re- remained a more traditional industrial model union, you know, where you lots of confrontation and Sturm and Drang and, you know, calling names on the other side. Whereas the UAW, and there's been some very good articles and the New York Times on this, by the way, and the Wall Street Journal, uh, showing the the degree of cooperation that's now in, uh, that they're now engaging in between UAW and the uh, Big Three, for example, and with the the states of upstate in the uh, Midwest. I'm talking Michigan and Ohio, which was the center of auto manufacturing from the very beginning. But in the last 30, 40 years, they lost a lot of plants to the southern U.S. Uh, because the states there were more nimble in working cooperatively with the auto companies. Now the states, uh, uh, everything I'm reading about Michigan and Ohio. They're working much more cooperatively. Not only the unions, but the state governors are working more cooperatively because I think it's because of Napoleon's famous phrase, you know, nothing concentrates the mind like the thought of being hung in the morning. And <laughs> in the auto industry, being hung is losing your plant and having it close. Good example, very quickly, Scott, because uh, I own a Jeep. <laughs> and uh, about three years ago, they decided, uh, Chrysler decided that they could not, they could not uh, expand at that at uh, site uh, with the constraints they were facing in Toledo, Ohio. And they announced that they were going to close it and move somewhere else, probably to the southern United States. Well, the, the UAW and the state got went into high gear with the mayors of the region and the uh, governor, and they put together a very large package. It wasn't just sheer giveaway money. They changed the regulations and the zoning to permit uh, things that they couldn't do before. So it wasn't just throw money at them. It was uh, often the, the, the car companies will say it's not not just that, it's the regulations, it's the restrictions on, you know, what we can do with the workers and that sort of thing. So they're working much more cooperatively in, in terms of streamlining the collective agreement to allow greater flexibility in the making of the cars and, and so on. So it can be done, but we didn't, uh, although GM went bankrupt, I don't think, because we didn't suffer uh, from the recession of 2009 anything like the Americans did. They really, really took it in the, in the, uh, in the neck. And, uh, you know, I think sometimes a crisis is that catalytic event that causes uh, 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 people to change and become willing to um, uh, to adapt. And we, I don't think that they really, we, yes, they've lost jobs in manufacturing, but it's been the drip, 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 you know, the famous story of the frog in the, in the water and you turn up the temperature very slowly. They didn't have a big, big crash all at once. It was very uh, slow, the job loss, incremental year after year. And so they didn't have that kick that um, has motivated them as it did in in the United States in the auto industry. How is the U.S. reacting to these GM closers compared to Canada? Well, if you're talking Trump, we know how he's doing. He's doing the bluster and all that. But the uh, I've read some of the speeches by, I mean, Sergio Marchione, the, the late and remarkable Canadian, Italian-Canadian CEO. Um, uh, I mean, he was really, truly a visionary and a strategic thinker who understood this industry. And, you know, he said they're looking now at more change in the next 10 years than they did in the previous 150 because of automo- uh, aut- autonomous vehicles and, of course, electric cars and the costs that are needed, the R&D costs, which are just truly staggering, and the billions and billions and, and billions of dollars. So the 
the uh, I think that this is uh, this is going to uh, really uh, <laughs> shake the apple carts uh, uh, going forward. But uh, the United States at the when you get below the bluster to answer your question, when the United States below the bluster of Trump, the governors are aware of this. The state governors are very focused, like a laser beam, on this, and they're working a lot more cooperatively than they did in the past. And and they're realizing that this these changes are real. General Motors is facing these changes, but so is Chrysler, so is Ford. Uh, and so they've got to work with the auto companies, and 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 not and again, it's not just about giving them free money. It's about changing, you know, the red tape and the rules and the regulations and so forth, to to allow them to become more flexible and more efficient, so they can respond to the you know the Toyotas and the Volkswagens and the other major companies in the world. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, we thank you for your time. Have yourself a great weekend. Yes, and you, Scott. Thanks very much. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.